Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. Having been arrested by Petey and the boys, Nab is taken back to police headquarters to be booked and questioned in part five of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. After my arrest and handoff at the Ashland Institute, I found myself at the police station, being charged and booked. My anger was off the charts. The boys had planted me in a chair at a nondescript desk, as Maddox entered all the pertinent details about me into the computer in front of him. Tahackett stood behind me, glowering, some of the other boys having gathered around to watch as well. I looked up at T, incredulous that I was actually being put through this. Turned out T had been the one who insisted I be booked. Ashland would be pressing charges, and the department had to cover its back. I was going to have an arrest record, whether I liked it or not, accompanied by a lengthy stay in the fish tank, most likely. Probably as much to teach me a lesson for being idiot enough to try and pull something like this, and pretty nearly screw up their entire case. Maddox, meanwhile, sat on the opposite side of the desk from me, his eyes on mine, his hands at his keyboard. Name? Well... Well what, T? Name? Nab. I think it would help us all out here if there was a little cooperation. Now, your full name, sir? Nabisco. Family name first, please. I don't have any freaking family name, dickhead. (laughs) Tut tut, I really don't think profanity is called for. Oh, I do. Sarge, a little help, please? Um, Mr. Nabisco, we can stay here all night if you like, but I know how much you like to sleep, don't you? Yeah, T, on a cold heart jail cot. They're not that hard. Petey. Now, last name, please, Mr. Nabisco. 67231. You said 62495? No, I said... Yes, that is correct, Officer Maddox. 62495. What? What are you talking about? I'm entering the name now. Well, that's interesting, Sarge. The computer says our Mr. Nabisco here died about six years ago. No kidding. You don't look too dead. Stop poking me, Petey. Must be something wrong with the computer records, Officer Maddox. Must be, Sarge. Mistakes do happen from time to time. Oh, well, nothing you can do. (sighs) Thank God. However, Mr. Nab, I am afraid we're going to have to interrogate you and find out everything you know. My pleasure. Fatterly? Yes, Hodge? Continue with the rest of the booking. Fatterly grabbed a blotter and waddled over, bringing with him the fingerprinting set. I raised my eyebrows again, then just let it go. At every step of the way, fingerprinting, the mugshot, some unavoidable mishap occurred, protecting my identity and my escapade. And as I was booked, step by step, the boys and I compared notes on the case. So what happened, Nab? Got caught. They seemed interested in interrogating me, but it didn't get too far. Just a woman and a security guard. She might have been one of Ashland's directors, though. You get a name? A Miss, or rather Ms. Steg. 
late 50s, maybe 60, I guess. Petey, run a check on her. Will do, Sarge. And don't assume anything given her age, T. She could probably take on your whole department from the looks of her. She comes across half mongoose, small but tenacious. Jippy, the wonder doc here, had a search run on this Ward Beecher you mentioned, Nav. Turns out he's big in political circles. Congressman or something? No, he's with the Atostolics, like their right-hand man, some big advisor. The Atostolics were one of the minor political parties. Their agenda wasn't all that radical compared to the folks currently in power, just different enough to be different. Their group promising greater transparency in government, extra clout for the SEC, etc., etc. At an earlier time, though, the Atostolics had been far more leftist, but had gradually moved into line with the current party in control, the centrists. Probably because they thought it was the only way to garner votes given their opponents' popularity. In fact, the centrists had not only overshadowed the Atostolics, but everyone else the last few decades, including the Republicans and the Democrats. And rightly so, I guess, given the centrist's more commonsensical take on tax issues and social reform. We always had plenty of political parties on the ballot, of course, but the far greater number of votes always went toward the same party each time. And it wasn't like it was some engineered conspiracy, some tampering with the votes. From what I could tell, most people wanted the same party over and over again, stating the same things repeatedly. The centrists were the party of security, of balance, the group that always seemed to give everyone a fair shake, the folks who took care of the big guy and the little guy alike. Even to me it always seemed that way, but I couldn't really tell if that was true one way or the other, and those stories, whether by way of the news media or word of mouth, ever popped up citing the contrary or no big stories anyway. I did remember some reports ages back of various problems and scandals the centrists had been wading through, but even those had faded after a while. But T, what would the Atostolics have to do with any of this? I got the feeling from my sister that if Ashland was going to work with anybody, they'd automatically hook up with the biggest boys on the block, not some penny-ante crowd. Maybe they go wherever the money is. The Atostolics? It's not like their coffers are overflowing. Nobody's throwing any huge fundraiser dinners for them that I've heard of. Not in the last decade in some. Why the hell would they? So the party could come in at a very distant second again? I don't know. But the address those pills were shipped to is the property of Beecher and his group. Really? Yeah. A big warehouse out near the Patapsco River. I've already put a call into Judge Orles, hoping to secure a search warrant ASAP. Which looks about as likely as the last one you asked for, right, Sarge? You're kidding, T. Afraid so. Worse yet, chances are the Ashland Institute and your Miss Steg have already let them know somebody was checking up on their order. So they may currently be trying to move whatever they delivered out before we can get in. Not that we could do all that much about it anyway right now. And even if we tried, well... What? What's going on here, T? The DA's got us in a bind, Nab. We've been pushing for warrants on the wrong people, apparently. And there's some talk of disbanding the department. Or at least replacing us. They've even threatened us with some bogus corruption charges. Bogus? Really? Bogus. Some of the stuff's almost unbelievable. It looks like a joke, but they're not joking. I sighed. It sounded all too much like what I was going through back at my office. I suddenly felt like my own personal curse was rubbing off on the boys. 
by helping them do their job only a little too well. It took us a minute of reflection that was more like a moment of mourning before we got back to the case at hand. In a way, though, the threats only energized our efforts to find some answers. Nab, I still don't get it. Get what, Petey? Well, some senator's kid is dead. From too much caffeine and citric acid. Then some old geese goes bonkers and decides he has to prove it to Baltimore by hijacking a radio station? How do those connect? Excuse me, but I've been thinking about that. Yeah, Jip? What do you got? Well, here you have an old man with Addison's disease, right? Well, Addison's occurs when the adrenal glands fail to produce enough cortisol, a type of hormone. But with Megan, besides his antidepressants, his record shows he had a history of taking ice rice, right? One of the designer drugs I mentioned earlier. But Jip, I thought you said those couldn't kill him. They won't. But one possible side effect of habitual use of the drug is that after a year more, it can also bring down the levels of cortisol in the body. Really? So what you have are two roads to the same condition. The same may have been true for your uncle, too. And it is quite possible that these drugs they were taking reacted adversely to that condition. After all, in Megan's case, what was supremely bad is that one of the many functions of cortisol is that it helps indirectly break down sugars in the body. You don't say. Which brings us back to our old soda pop friend, Wisty, and Megan's peculiar OD. Now, I've searched all the databases I have looking for this Daflinox, Zedilinox, and all the other prenatals you mentioned, if that's what they are. None of them are listed. There's no information on any of them. So you're saying they aren't in general circulation? That these were Ashland's own little designer drugs? Apparently. And for what? Well, that's the big question. T, it's also possible that Ashland's names for these are internal. Once out in the marketplace, they may have different Inox names. Or maybe they're relabeled with the usual Inox names, the ones that are listed in the database, making them changelings of a sort. Possibly. What we need is to get hold of one of these pills and run tests on it to find out just what they are. T, did Gypsum tell you the quantity involved in that order for this Beechard guy? And here we can't find any info on these pharmaceuticals? I'm telling you, this stinks to high heaven. And sitting around here jawing about it is not going to get us any answers. Well, I doubt Ashland's going to help us there. They deny even having produced the things. I called that warehouse earlier. Beechard's place? Acting like it was Ashland verifying their shipment made it there. And? They said they had no record of receiving one. Of course. But that shouldn't stop us. And just what do you mean by that, Nab? That I think we owe Mr. Beechert's warehouse a visit, T. And we better do it quick, before they hide the stash or it gets shipped out to God knows where. That's what I was thinking. Petey, for the first time in a long time, I'm right there with you. Both of you are totally out of bounds. T, look, since my namesake's already in hot water, we might as well let him make it a regular crime spree. It's now known he has a fondness for trespassing, so I think it's time he does a little more. Sorry, can't do that. Well, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to do it anyway. I said... T, once I'm in, if there's any trouble, you just respond to my call like it's any other report of a break-in. That's the only way you're going to get in there without a search warrant anyway, right? Plus, that area and its surroundings are under your jurisdiction, I believe. How would you like to be locked up again? For real this time. 
tea, all I need is for you fellows to be standing by. Look, you can either wait here to hear about it, or out by the warehouse. Your choice. Plus, it may be the only way to clear your names right now. And when all's said and done, personally, I just couldn't imagine life without the Enigma Boys. It took another 15 minutes of knockdown drag out before T begrudgingly agreed to have the boys wait on standby for me out in the Patapsco area. He muttered that it would probably mean his badge in the end, but our talk about the Enox Pharmaceuticals had him worried too. In the end, despite his own skin and those of his officers, I suppose he was really worried as much about me going in there than anything. He just never would have said it. An hour later, we arrived down the road from the warehouse, me and just about all the Enigma boys, Petey, Maddox, Gypsum, Fatterly, and a couple of others, T heading them up. Only a handful had stayed behind to man the phones. In the meantime, a call came through that T's latest request for a warrant had been denied. No surprise. So we quietly piled out of the cars and gathered at the roadside, up near a row of poplars and sycamores. I slipped a small backpack on me, dropping a bottle of water in its zippered pouch. Below us, down a hill, lay the warehouse, its entrance a half minute away down the gravel road by speeding patrol car. T handed me a small silver strip that looked like part of a chewing gum wrapper. That goes in your pocket, Nab. What is it? GPS device, so we can at least pinpoint where you are inside. Thanks, T. I dialed T's private line into my cell. Now all I needed to do was press one button and the boys would come running like it was any other report of a public disturbance or assault and battery, or in my case, perhaps much worse. Nab, give me your phone. Why T, what? He took it from me before I could finish, opening up the back and fitting a chip inside before returning it to me. There, now I can operate your phone remotely and have it dial the precinct's number. Really? Yeah, a police special. It's the same sort of thing they've done forever with computers, to fix problems without a tech on site. Take control of it remotely, so if anything does happen to you, God forbid, we can automatically have your phone call us. And then you'll come in? Yep. And if we don't hear from you in 30 minutes, I'll activate your phone and we will come in, understand? T, you act like you think I don't want you to come rescue my ass. Really, no need to worry. I'm a born coward. Cross my heart. Well, I am worried. T, I'm not expecting much trouble. It's a warehouse, for God's sake. Not Fort Knox. Of course, for the last half hour, I'd been basically telling them that very thing over and over again. That the whole operation would be simple and safe. But deep down, I had a feeling it would be neither. Just the same, there was no way I was going to tell T that. He wouldn't have let me go at all. Either way... I was thankful for the phone chip thing, or frankly any emergency measure if it meant saving my hide. T insisted Petey accompany me most of the way, in an off-duty capacity, plain clothes and all. Funny thing was, outside of to hack it, Petey was probably the most competent officer in the department. Scary, I know. But I had to admit, when it came to pointing and firing a pistol, Petey had a gift. One I just might need if push came to, well, shots. Even then, he'd stay on the outside, acting as point man, while I snuck in and snooped around, trying to see what I could see. T shook my hand in a final send-off, and then Petey and I slip-slided down the grassy hill together, heading for the lights at the bottom, 
where a couple of trucks were parked in the dirt lot next to some enormous rolling doors. Once we reached bottom, Petey turned to me. Nab, I'd give you a gun, but... I don't want one, Petey. All the more reason for them to take a shot at me. I am simply a wandering minstrel, a hiker who has lost his way. Valdery Valdera. Got it? Whatever you say. Yeah, and let's keep it that way this time. Don't come barging in unless you hear from me or T. I don't want to see any of this showing initiative stuff, got it? We're only going to get one shot at this. Plus, I'm sure I'm going to need to think a good deal once I get down there. And I can't do that too well if I'm running for my life. You really think it's going to be that bad? I thought you told Sarge it'd be easy. Yes, I know what I told Sarge. (laughs) Your sis is going to be awful ticked at me if you get killed. (laughs) Yeah, well, I might be a little miffed too. Damn it, Nab. Here, Petey. Have a caramel. I've always found they help. I held the little box out at him. He took one, and I left him at the outer fence, walking around to the front. The gate had a crossing guard across the dirt drive, but it was designed to keep cars out, not innocent wanderers like myself. There was no physical guard in the little shack beside it either. They probably didn't think they even needed one. Or maybe the guard had stepped away for the moment. I headed in, skirting the outsides of the buildings, angling for the main one, which unfortunately had lights all about its perimeter. I ducked in against the outside of one of the metal buildings, between a gap in the lights, and was busy eyeing the thing's cavernous front door in hopes of figuring a quiet way in, when I heard a noise right next to me. I thought I was going to have a coronary. Metal hit me in the rear, voices talking as two guys came out of a door just inches from me. I fell back against the building's corrugated tin wall, but not quickly enough, and one of the guys actually tripped over my foot, falling into the dirt. I gasped, and winced too, given the pain, waiting for the fellow to turn and start throwing questions at me, before picking me up and throwing me out instead. As I recoiled against the wall, The second fellow burst out laughing at his friend's pratfall and literally picked him up by the scruff of his collar, poking fun at him, which caused the two to roughhouse a bit, half slugging each other till they disappeared into the darkness. When I was sure they'd gone, I turned to study the door they'd come through. No wonder I hadn't seen it. The doorknob was a simple hole in the metal sheeting, all of an inch wide, with scratches around its outsides where a handle once existed. I carefully pried the door open peeking into the warehouse, then slipped in. Inside, the floor was flat concrete and stank of oil a bit, as well as a certain dampness that comes with old wood and ropes and plastic. Bare light bulbs hung down every 40 feet or so. I wandered into the sea of crates in front of me. Most of them were bundled stacks of smaller crates, each rising about 10 feet into the air their outsides wrapped in a hard plastic. I tiptoed through the aisle of crates, trying to steer clear of any voices that happened by, not to mention the crane assembly running the length of the warehouse overhead with its operator, all while I searched the crates' outsides for Ashland's markings, whatever they might be. After five or six minutes, I was about to give up and try my luck at sneaking in and swiping a shipping manifest 
when I noticed a symbol on one crate that somewhere in the back of my head I connected with medical supplies, or something perishable anyway. I snuck over to get a closer look. Besides a lengthy serial number in the crate's odd symbols, there were no identifiable markings on its outsides at all. But considering that every other crate seemed to make it a point to have an enormous logo prominently displayed, this kind of secrecy smacked of Ashland. I quickly found a crowbar on the floor back near a forklift and returned to the stack of crates, carefully climbing up on top to see if I could find an easier way into one of the crates and earn myself a little more leverage in the bargain. I found a rip in the stack's tough plastic wrap coating, tore a bigger gouge in it, and put the crowbar to use, wincing at every sound with which nail and wood conspired to give me away. I had to get through the crate, a large plastic chest, and an ice wrap, part of the filler meant to keep the contents cool. Talk about a job. I probably should have taken Petey's gun with me after all, or just to blow a hole in the damn thing and reach in with one stroke. When I'd finally finished, though, I had a small strip of liquid packs in my hand, each the size and feel of a ketchup packet from some fast food joint. Problem was, what I came up with wasn't Terracinox, like what Megan had had, but something else instead. Zasinox. But given the inox suffix, that was good enough for me. Whether Terracinox or Zasinox, it still felt like dynamite. Come down off of there. I froze, pretending like I hadn't heard anything. After all, maybe they were talking to somebody else. You, in the blue shirt, I'm talking to you. I checked my shirt. Sure enough, blue. I said... Yeah, I know, I heard you. Well then get your ass down here. Don't make me have to come up there and break something of yours. <laughs> no need to go out of your way. I quickly stuffed the liquid packs in my backpack and began climbing down off the crates taking note of my new company. He was big, like a couple of lumberjacks rolled into one, with red curly hair puffed up so high it was practically an afro. He was even wearing a thick plaid flannel shirt, just perfect for the Canadian Rockies. Sorry, I uh, uh, lost my way. Yeah, all the way up on top of those crates? I nodded stupidly and just shut up, trying not to dig a bigger hole for myself. Guess I'd been hanging around Petey too long. I stepped down onto the floor. Somebody wants to talk to you, bub. The fellow pointed me forward, doing so surprisingly without the knuckle sandwich or any of the undue violence so popular with his kind in the detective yarns. Like as not, he was probably just one of the regular warehouse working stiffs, big and burly and perfect for moving boxes around. To him, I was just the latest crate to be delivered. Uh, you don't have a gun or nothing, do you? Um, no. No gun. Thanks for asking. Good. This way. He started to lead, and like a good little burglar, I followed. Mostly because I figured this was probably the quickest way to get any answers to what was going on at all, even if it meant something unhealthy for me in the end. Plus, who knows, maybe I'd find out the Atostolics really didn't know what they had after all, given the pharmaceutical's debilitating and sometimes lethal nature. Just the same, I put my hand in my front pocket grasping my phone, ready to thumb the number I'd set for to hack it in a split second, if need be. A minute later, after crossing the warehouse floor, we ended up in a side office, filled with the usual office administrative equipment, but also holding four other people, one of whom I'd met at Ashland. 
Well, hello again. Ms. Steg. I guess things really do come back your way in the end, don't they? <laughs> Unfortunately, for you. And so ends Episode 5 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. The cast included Tom Fahey as Petey, Maggie Irvin as Gypsum, Rick Sallow as Sergeant Hackett, Michael Berenger as Officer Maddox and the Warehouse Worker, Cindy Rasmussen as Ms. Steg, and I, Michael McGee, whom superstitious thespians the world over refer to as the Irish Lad, played the part of Nab. The music used here was by Jamie Sieber, Lee Mattiford, Kumar, Clouseau, and Devin Anderson, portions of whose Monster Symphony you are currently listening to, and were courtesy of sites like Magnatune, Gemendo, Podsafe Audio, CC Mixter, Internet Archive, and the Podshow Podsafe Network at music.podshow.com. The tune Tomorrow, which opened the episode, was from 1922 and was performed by Emil Coleman and his Montmartre Orchestra. Most of the sound effects heard here were courtesy of SoundSnap at soundsnap.com. All the song and music titles and the names of the artists heard in this episode can be found on the music page at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode 6 or hit that subscribe button or follow us for the conclusion of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun.